Today we got, we're going to have our third and uh, final uh, uh, lecture on uh, Reconstruction. Uh, this, uh, this time we're going to talk about the retreat and the end uh, of Reconstruction. Now, to understand why Reconstruction ended, you have to look not so much to the South, but to the North. Because, as I mentioned earlier, it was the North that was, by 1872, holding Republican Party rule together in the South. Only Northern political support and only Northern military support could keep the increasingly shaky coalition of freedmen, carpetbaggers, and Southern white Republicans in power in the face of an increasingly violent white Democratic opposition. In many respects, in fact, it boiled down to a matter of will. Would the North have the will? Would it have the staying power to see Reconstruction through? Or would the South be able to exhaust Northerners' patience? Now, in 1864, during the Civil War, as I mentioned earlier, the South, in effect, tried the same strategy, which I also, you may recall, uh, compared to the North Vietnamese during the uh, war in Vietnam. Each sought to hang on long enough to exhaust the will and the patience of a stronger, richer, and more well-equipped adversary. North Vietnam succeeded. The South in 1864 failed, although, as we discussed, it was a very near thing, owing more to William Sherman's uh, brutal march through Georgia uh, in late 1864 and 1865 than anything else. But what would happen now, ten years later? What would the North do? Well, it would not take long after the re-election of Ulysses S. Grant in 1872 to see which way the wind was blowing. In September 1873, the Banking and Investment House of J. Cook & Company, which had been the main financier for the North uh, uh, during the Civil War, financed their northern military uh, uh, effort, failed, went out of business. J. Cook had been caught up in the speculative frenzy that accompanied the railroad building boom of the post-Civil War years. It had overextended itself and went under, almost like the titanic of investment houses, under a mountain of debt. Now, this would be like Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers going under today, and we all know what's going on today. The failure of J. Cook and Company triggered other uh, banking and investment house failures. And this, again, should sound familiar to us right now. Uh, all you have to do is substitute homes for railroads, and you have an analogy. Now, these bank and investment house failures led, in turn, to the failures of the businesses to whom they lent, including railroads and manufacturing concerns. Again, this sounds familiar to you. It should sound. And this, in turn, led to unemployment. By 1874, the unemployment rate in the United States was 14%. It's around 6% right now. The unemployment rate in New York City in 1874 
Now, the depression that followed the panic of 1873, which was triggered by the failure of Jay Cook and Company, was the worst in the United States in 35 years and would last until the late 1870s. To cope with lowered revenues, the businesses that were able to survive the panic and depression tried to lower wages. And this, in turn, triggered a series of violent labor strikes, the likes of which the nation had never seen. Textile workers struck in New England for over three months. Coal miners struck in eastern Pennsylvania, uh, spawning uh, the vigilante group, uh, uh, the Irish vigilante miners group known as the Molly Maguires. Uh, 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 these were uh, viewed as terrorists, certainly, by the, uh, uh, by the mine owners who they were killing, uh, 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 revolutionaries by the supporters of the Molly Maguires, a number of whom were hanged for murder. Uh, uh, so there was more strife there. But the worst was the railroad workers' strike of 1877, which spread west from Baltimore to Pittsburgh to Chicago in an orgy of violence on both management and labor's side. There were overturned railroad tracks, destroyed locomotives, uh, federal troops had to be called in. <clears throat> in fact, uh, moving forward with the course, when we get to Nell Painter's book, Standing at Armageddon, which we'll be getting to, I think, uh, next time or, or, or the time after. Uh, the cover photograph is uh, from the uh, Great Strike of uh, 1877. So, with the Panic of 1873 and the Depression of uh, 1873 to 1878, Northerners had a lot more to worry about than what was going on in the South during Reconstruction. But there was more to it than this. The J. Cook Investment House, whose failure started the panic of 1873, was in many ways the symbol of a new age, the symbol of a new America. America, in the years after the Civil War, was an expanding and rapidly industrializing nation in which manufacturing firms were growing at an incredible rate, employing more and more of the American workforce, at least in the North. By 1873, the year of the panic, America's industrial production had doubled its 1865 output. That's just only eight years. America had laid out more miles of railroad track between 1865 and 1873 alone than it had in all the years before 1860 combined. By 1873, the United States was second only to Great Britain in industrial output. And for the first time in 1873, the number of non-agricultural workers exceeded the number of agricultural workers in the United States. Now, considering that the South and the West were still overwhelmingly agricultural, this meant that the North was becoming overwhelmingly industrialized. And it wasn't industrialization alone that was going on, but industrial capitalism. Now, we know what industrial is, but what do I mean by the second word, capitalism? Well, these uh, industrial manufacturing firms needed money, finance, capital, to build their plants, to expand, to produce, to pay their workers. The railroads needed money 
finance, capital, credit, to build locomotives and stations and lay down miles and miles of track. Now, who would lend them this money? Well, it would be banks and financiers like Jay Cook and Company uh, who would do this. And often, these banks would do more than lend money uh, uh, to industrial corporations. They would become the partners of these corporations. They would invest in these corporations themselves, forming an interlocking, interconnected network of manufacturing corporations, railroads, banks, financiers, and merchant middlemen that control the American economy, a huge behemoth we can call industrial capitalism. Now, the existence of this huge industrial capitalism by the 1870s in the United States had a lot of consequences, which we'll be exploring in detail in the coming weeks. But for our purposes today, and for the purposes of explaining the end of the northern will to support Reconstruction uh, in the South, I want to focus on industrial capitalism's effect on class relations in America generally, and the idea of free labor, that familiar idea specifically. Now, by the 1870s, it almost seemed that George Fitzhugh, you remember George Fitzhugh, his pre-war criticism of northern industrial society, uh, wrong-headed as it was on the actual question of slavery, uh, may have been right about the impersonal brutalities of the northern capitalist system in its effect on the American working class. Now, whatever the accuracy of Fitzhugh's charges against uh, uh, that system in 1850 when he was uh, writing, by the 1870s, the North had turned into a version of George Fitzhugh's nightmare version. The idea of free labor had become a sad joke. A fixed, permanent, unskilled industrial working class with no ability to rise out of that status now existed in the United States. The rags to riches idea, or even the rags to respectability idea, was largely a myth. There were huge factories practicing de-skilling of workers, taking a job requiring a skill, and subdividing it so finely that it could be performed by a number of unskilled workers. Thus, it turned proud, independent, Republican, small r, remember I talked about that, uh, uh, workers into a de dependent, unskilled drones. Now, the chances for entrepreneurship under these circumstances yeah. of, in the words of Abraham Lincoln describing the free labor system in the 50s, uh, becoming, uh, being an employee one year, working for yourself the next year, and uh, 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 being an employer yourself the year after that, uh, uh, the chances for this happening were virtually non-existent. And to complicate this end of free labor, or the free labor idea, uh, even more, at the same time this seemingly permanent, uh, uh, unskilled American working class was forming, another opposed class had also formed, once again contradicting free labor's prediction of class harmony. And this class was composed, well, obviously of the industrial capitalist elite, 
uh, the new wealth of America. Uh, factory owners, uh, uh, railroad owners, financiers, and this is, of course, not surprising, but of more historical importance is the formation of a class that allied with the industrial capitalist elite and was much more numerous. And this is the middle class of America. Now, we obviously spoke about the uh, new American middle class in America in the uh, 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 years after the market revolution, and specifically uh, the 1830s. But by the 1870s, this class had grown. It had expanded from a class of shopkeepers and clerks to a larger self-conscious group of white-collar employees and professionals, lawyers, real estate agents, uh, bankers, accountants, uh, uh, middle managers, merchants. And these were associated with, allied with, and very often employed by the industrial capitalist elite. Now, unlike the reforming middle class of the 1830s that we talked about, this middle class of the 1870s was conservative, both politically and culturally. You may recall that in the 1830s, I described the new middle class as being uh, conservative culturally, but liberal and even radical politically. This middle class, by the, by the 1870s, was both conservative politically and culturally. This middle class looked above itself to the industrial capitalist elite, to the upper class, and not below itself to the working class for inspiration and support. And in fact, this middle class feared the working class immensely. It looked upon the, the working class as violent and unstable and uncouth, vulgar, not respectable in any way. Remember that word from uh, the 1830s and from your midterms. Now, the white-collar professional middle class uh, uh, in the North by the 1870s had thus aligned itself economically, politically, and culturally with the upper class, the industrial capitalist elite. And like them, the middle class were appalled by the labor unrest and the violence of the 1870s. They feared disorder, above all, feared what the working class, which had plenty of class consciousness of its own, might do if the working class actually came to power in the United States. It seemed to this middle class that all of the class conflicts of Europe, which America had supposedly avoided, or so said the gospel of free labor, had now come to America in full force after all. And for this middle class, as well as for their upper class allies, there was only one solution to this problem. The best people in America, not the working class rabble, must rule. And who were the best people, you ask? Well, surprise, surprise, they were. The white collar middle class and the industrial capitalist elite, they were the best people, self-anointed. Only they could provide the political and economic stability that America needed to grow. To them, middle class and upper class, the working class promised only anarchy and the loss of everything the middle class and upper class had worked for and earned and deserved. Losing it to an undeserving 
working class that, in their view, had not worked hard enough. Since enough of the free labor idea, free labor philosophy, had survived in the minds of the middle class and the upper class to have them view someone who was poor uh, uh, as someone who hadn't shown enough initiative, enough desire, enough hard work, and thus someone who deserved to be poor not acknowledging that in the new industrial economy of the 1870s that, uh, uh, that made uh, uh, opportunities for upward mobility so scarce. Now, what you may ask does have all of this uh, and all of these goings-on in the North have to do with the end of the Reconstruction period in the South? Well, as I said, the Northern industrial capital, uh, capitalist elite and the white-collar middle class that was allied with them considered themselves the best people in their region, the North. Looking south, who did they see as the best people there? Who was just like them in the south? Well, it was the white southern Democrats, the planters, the merchants, the businessmen. Just as the best people in the North were staving off the anarchy, of the working class rabble, the best people in the South were attempting to save civilization from the black rabble. And so we see the ironic spectacle of Northern Republicans who had spoken of an evil slave power before the Civil War, who had pilloried the Southern rebels during the Civil War, and who had called for stringent measures against the traitors of the South in the years immediately following the war, as we saw, now calling for a national reconciliation with their brothers in the Southern Democratic Party, calling for an end to sectional strife, calling for a withdrawal of the heavy hand of federal power from the South, and for a return to the great American principle of local autonomy, states' rights, home rule. Well, what a difference a few years make. But maybe this Northern Republican turnaround is not so hard to understand when viewed in the context of the industrializing uh, capitalistic culture which had come to dominate the America of the 1870s, the period which after all, historians have always called the Gilded Age. This was now a blatantly sink-or-swim culture. In the North, if workers could not succeed on their own, too bad. In the South, the feeling went in many Republican circles that if the freedmen couldn't succeed, especially in view of the help in the form of uh, voting rights, civil rights legislation, and the Freedmen's Bureau, not to mention federal troops. If the freedmen could not succeed in this atmosphere, then it was also too bad. They would not spend any more time, any more money, and any more political capital on them. In many ways, the Northern Republican attitude towards the freedmen, as well as their white brethren in the Southern Republican Party, resembled that held by many Americans towards their South Vietnamese allies in the final years of the war in Vietnam. For both, the attitude was, if you're not strong enough or determined enough to fight for yourselves, we will not fight for you. 
And to carry the Vietnam analogy a step further, and return to a theme I mentioned at the beginning of this lecture, the North, like the American nation at the end of the Vietnam War, had lost its will to fight, had been weighted out, so to speak, by the white Democrats of the South. And the Northern Republicans were now ready to, as one opponent of the Vietnam War advised, declare victory and leave. Except, of course, that Americans, whether in Vietnam or uh, uh, in the North as Reconstruction came to an end, could not legitimately portray themselves as winners. Now, no group typified the change in Northern Republican attitudes towards Reconstruction in the 1870s and its, uh, uh, and its ironies uh, 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 more than the group that called itself the Liberal Republicans. Now, the Liberal Republicans uh, uh, were a faction of the Republican Party that had once supported stern measures against the South. These were probably uh, moderate Republicans. Uh, they had supported the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. They had supported the Reconstruction Acts, the Civil Rights Acts of the 1860s. Many of these liberal Republicans had actually been anti-slavery men, and some even abolitionists before the Civil War. But by the early 1870s, they were more worried about class violence in the North, and specifically about controlling the working class, than Reconstruction in the South. Now, the liberal Republicans were mainly middle-class, white-collar uh, professionals uh, who identified with industrial capitalism and wanted to see government leave business alone, alone to make money and help the economy grow. These were trickle-downers, we would call them today. And correspondingly, the liberal Republicans wanted the federal government to get out of the South so that the two regions, North and South, could reconcile. And so the best people of both regions, North and South, could ensure the nation's stability against the threat of the working class in the North and the freedmen in the South. Now, the liberal Republicans uh, had nominated their own candidate for president in 1872, Horace Greeley, and fittingly, the Democrats endorsed Greeley, too, so he ran on both party tickets. Now, although, as I mentioned, Greeley lost to Ulysses S. Grant in the presidential election of 1872, the liberal Republicans continued after the election to gain power and influence. And by 1875, no longer a separate party, uh, uh, they probably comprised the majority sentiment in the Republican Party as a whole. Now, it would not be fair or completely fair to portray the liberal Republicans and the Republicans that turned away from Reconstruction in the 1870s uh, in a relentlessly negative way. In fairness, they were concer concerned about some issues that were completely legitimate. First, there was a lot of corruption in Southern Republican governments, kickbacks, paid payrolls, outright embezzlement, and they certainly uh, had a right to be concerned about that. Second, there, were, there was a lot of spending, some needless spending, by Reconstruction state governments on social services, which had driven up taxes and debts. Uh, uh, and certainly, uh, Northern Republicans were legitimately concerned about that. And also, despite legislation and constitutional amendments, 
despite everything Northern Republicans had done before the 1870s. Southern whites refused to accept black equality. And it seemed to Northern Republicans in the 1870s that they had done everything they possibly could. And that forcing Southern whites to change their minds, change their hearts about blacks, would take a very, very long time, maybe forever. Northern Republicans knew they could not stay in the South forever to accomplish this. And so they argued that federal authority should withdraw from what would be a futile mission. And also, legitimately, uh, 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 North, uh, liberal Republicans were concerned with the negative impact that federal power had on the South. After all, federal troops with guns were patrolling the halls of the state capitals of the South. You know, what impact would this have on the nation as a whole? It set a bad precedent. What would stop the federal government from using its power to trample on individual rights in the North? Northern Republicans asked this question, and it was a legitimate one. Although, obviously, the federal government was patrolling southern state capitals with guns in the first place because the liberties of African Americans were being trampled on there. In other words, uh, uh, to protect individual liberties, not to destroy individual liberties. But by 1875, this argument was largely lost on most Northern Republicans who viewed federal troops... Uh, in the South as the strong arms of tyrants. And in 1875, when President Grant dispatched more federal troops to Louisiana to combat white violence and voter fraud there, most Northern Republicans criticized him for assaulting individual liberties and states' rights. Later that year, in 1875, under similar circumstances in Mississippi, President Grant refused to send federal troops to the applause of most Northern Republicans who were tired of what they called these annual autumnal outbreaks in the South. Note the implication of moral equivalence between Southern whites and blacks. Uh, and Grant and the Republicans allowed that state to fall, Mississippi, to, to fall to the Democrats. By 1876, every southern state but two, Louisiana and South Carolina, had fallen back into Democratic hands, had been redeemed, in the words white southerners used. And those two remaining states, Louisiana and South Carolina, stayed Republican only by virtue of the presence of federal troops. By 1876, also the 14th Amendment, and much of the civil rights and Ku Klux Klan legislation, which had been passed by the Republican Congress to enforce civil rights in the South, had been gutted by the Supreme Court. In the Slaughterhouse case of 1873, the Supreme Court had held that the federal rights, federal citizenship rights, guaranteed by the 14th Amendment, were extremely limited in scope and basically trivial uh, access to ports in the high seas, rights like equal protection of the laws were to be protected not by the federal government, said the Supreme Court in the Slaughterhouse case, but by the states, meaning in the South, they wouldn't be protected at all. Then in 1876, in the Cruikshank case, C-R-U-I-K-S-H-A-N-K, the Supreme Court ruled in holding the Ku Klux Klan Act unconstitutional, 
that the 14th Amendment and the Ku Klux Klan Act only could apply to actions of a state against civil rights, not individuals against civil rights. Once again, uh, 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 these uh, individual actions fell under local authority, meaning the states of the South had to prosecute them. Individual violations of civil rights were thus outside the purview of federal law and the 14th Amendment. Now, effectively, of course, this made both the 14th Amendment and the Ku Klux Klan Act completely ineffectual because the Klan, of course, was composed of private citizens, private individuals. That was the whole idea. They were a vigilante, extra-legal group, and so they could not be prosecuted, said the Supreme Court, uh, under the Klan Act or the 14th Amendment. And so the scene was set for the final blow to Reconstruction, and that would occur in the presidential election of 1876. But, and this is typical in American history, it would occur in a way that no one expected. Now, the Democrats had high hopes in 1876 of winning the White House for the first time since before the Civil War. They had captured the House of Representatives in 1874, and were gaining power <clears throat> through uh, redeemed democratic governments uh, in the South. And on election night in 1876, it appeared that they had won. The Democratic candidate, Samuel Tilden of New York, a graduate of New York University, as am I, uh, held the lead in both the popular and the electoral votes over his opponent, the Republican governor of Ohio, Rutherford B. Hayes. But a funny thing happened to Samuel J. Tilden and the Democrats on the way to the White House, or a number of funny things. Well after midnight on election night, long after Hayes himself, the Republican, had resigned himself to losing, Republican leaders disputed the returns in three states, Louisiana, South Carolina, and, this should sound familiar, Florida. Tilden had appeared to carry those states. But there was massive Democratic voter fraud in those states. Obviously, the Klan is active, a lot of voter intimidation. I talked about that before. And the Republicans claimed that in reality they had carried those states. And if they had indeed carried all three of those states, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida, their electoral votes, when added to the already existing Republican total, would give Hayes, the Republican, a one-vote victory in the Electoral College over Tilden, 185-184. So, as the nation careened into a constitutional crisis, both Republicans and Democrats claimed that they had won the election. <laughs> Starting to sound familiar? It sounds very much like 2000. And both Democrats and Republicans presented governors and other elected representatives, uh, 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 as well as rival electoral college slates uh, in Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida. In other words, uh, they claimed, each side claimed they had elected a governor. Uh, each side claimed that their slate of electors should go to Washington and cast the votes. Now, in February 1877, only a month before a new president was scheduled to be inaugurated, in those days they inaugurated the president on March 4th, not January 20th, the nation still didn't know who the next president would be. So to end the crisis, both parties agreed on a special 15-man electoral commission to decide who had won. 
Now, this 15-man electoral commission was to be equally divided between Republicans and Democrats, seven and seven, with the 15th member, who effectively was going to decide the election, to be an independent. And this independent was to be a Supreme Court justice by the name of David Davis. But very interestingly, at this moment, a seat in the Senate from Illinois opened up, and David Davis was selected to fill it, making it impossible for him to serve on the Electoral Commission. So another member had to be selected, who turned out to be a Republican, who, of course, voted for Hayes, and by 8 to 7, Hayes, the Republican, was selected as the winner of the election. Now, I think personally that the fix was in, that Davis's Senate election was engineered by the Republicans to get him out of the way, making way for a Republican to cast the deciding ballot. And certainly the Democrats believed that this was the case. This was not the last time that the Democrats would believe that a close election had been stolen from them. And the Democrats now threatened to disrupt the Hayes inaugural, to march on Washington, unless their needs were taken care of. And what were their needs? Well, their needs were they wanted to pressure President Hayes, or the President-elect Hayes, to promise to pull the remaining federal troops out of the, of the South, out of Louisiana and out of South Carolina. They wanted Hayes to promise local control, or effectively democratic control in the South. And they wanted Hayes to promise to end Reconstruction. Hayes agreed to do so, and the Democrats dropped their objection to his inauguration. Hayes went on to serve a rather uh, undistinguished term as president, and as the last remaining uh, uh, su southern Republican state government fell to the Democrats with the promised withdrawal of federal troops, the experiment of Reconstruction came to an end in 1877. It seems to me that the South may have lost the presidency in 1876, so the Democrats lost the presidency, but they got a much better bargain than did the Republicans. Reconstruction's end ushered in a long night in Southern politics and race relations, one that lasted almost 100 years. The South during this time was white supremacist, strictly segregated, politically localist, and economically stagnant. And until well into the 20th century, basically until the late 1940s, the North, in effect, looked the other way and pretended it did not see this in the South. The 14th Amendment, drafted to protect civil rights, was instead used primarily to protect the rights of corporations. And the idea of a powerful nation state uh, a, a powerful national state protecting a series of federally protected rights to civil and political equality and liberty fell into disuse. But, as those of you who uh, might have taken or might take my History 132 course, Nation in a Modern World, which covered the 20th century, uh, uh, you will uh, discover, or maybe have discovered, that uh, uh, this injustice would not last forever because in the 1960s, the president, the Congress, and the courts would build on the ideas of the first reconstruction of the 19th century to construct a second reconstruction 
in the 20th and establish an edifice of federally guaranteed civil and political rights that, unlike those constructed by its predecessors in the 1860s and 1870s, would stand the test of time.